Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. You're listening to Bite Into It with Dan Morganti, Warren Davies and Ro Murray. Tonight on the show, we're going to be joined by Professor Peter Holland, who's talking surveillance at work, particularly e-monitoring and surveillance. Plus, we have Samantha Floriani and Ruby Quayle, who are going to talk queer spaces online, plus the e-safety commissioner report. But before we hoof into all of that, Dan, Warren, how's your week in tech been? Um, very good, thank you. Uh, I my pay was messed up, so I've been dealing with my pay department at work. Um, that was entirely my fault. I just didn't add it into the system. I was dealing with the, oh, no. <laughs> the uh, timesheet program at work, and I just missed something. So, yeah, entirely my fault. I'm just working it out. That's my week in tech, basically. <laughs> Massive pain in the bum. How about you, Warren? <laughs> Timesheet software is funny. I've I've bought it and had it hanging around for ages and kind of plugged it in and used it, but it's um it's so naff. So even though I'm theoretically in charge of that, I um I tend to ignore it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, otherwise otherwise pretty good. Um, I don't know. I've been using a new walkie-talkie app with with someone overseas. That's a WhatsApp, and um. Yeah, growing up as a kid, walkie-talkies was the best thing. I had walkie-talkies with my neighbour and we would do like Morse code and we were listening to truckers and stuff like that. So a bit nostalgic. That's been fun. Oh, absolute best thing in the world. I think my brother and I learnt most of our favourite swear words from the local truckers. <laughs> <laughs> he was right into the old, you know, radio setup. So. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Yeah, very entertainingly. He still drives a ute, even though he, he's lived in Melbourne most of his life, he still drives a ute with seven-foot antennas and every sort of CB rig in it draining the battery. Just liking, <laughs> just wanting to hear what the truckers have to Absolutely. say. Absolutely. Yeah. It's still his favourite thing. <laughs> just just complaining about automation coming for their jobs most likely. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. A 10-4 rubber duck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we do have some news items coming up. Uh, Warren, would you like to kick us off? Yeah, sure. Um, there is a bit of news. I think um, we may have mentioned um, uh, technology in the war. I think Vanessa may have spoke about it on Breakfasters uh, maybe last week um, or, or the week before. But um, there is some new stuff coming out of Ukraine. Um, uh, yeah, it, it's 2022, so technology is obviously going to have a, a large part in, in the war, both uh Tracking, surveillance, uh, use of drones, um, uh, tinder bombs, which um, we can maybe park for another time. But um, <laughs> Ukraine has actually started using Clearview, which is, um, if not the uh, one of the largest uh, facial recognition um, uh, platforms out there um, today. Um, so it's actually been... Um, I guess the commercial terms are a little bit unclear, but um, they're certainly using it in Ukraine. And they're using it for things such as um, checking people at checkpoints, for identifying uh, you know, saboteurs or, or uh, insurgents or intelligence officers um, for Russia during their um, so-called special operation. Um, I actually don't know what it means at a um, at a kind of boots on the ground level, um, whether it's the sort of thing where you can, you know, use a, a, um, a phone version um, or is there like a whole bunch of jank that you have to roll out with cameras and, and so forth. But I guess if they've already got cameras like um, you know, street security cameras and stuff like that, it might just be a matter of um, sticking in the jack and, and off you go. But um 
Yeah. Uh, I don't know. There's been a lot of interesting stuff going on with the um, uh, with uh, military tech. And um, there was one, what, I guess a related story, one um, uh, platform which allowed you to surveil um, uh, public as opposed to military drones as to where they are and what they're doing. And Russia was apparently patching into a, a global service to, to surveil drones because um, apparently Ukraine citizens are helping the military um, by doing, uh, you know, counter surveillance or surveillance of, of Russian operations in their cities. So that's interesting. Um, yeah, I, I guess um, probably our, our usual position on um, uh, on AI and facial recognition software on the show is it's it's not a great thing. But um, I guess this is the exception that proves the rule. You know, if we can flip it and say, hey, maybe it is a good time to be um, watching out for people. Most of the time, it's not. Um, that's interesting. But um, I don't know. Lesser of two evils. What, what, what do you two think? Um, I've just been hearing about like. Uh, TikToks. They've been using like um, can- Canadian soldiers who are coming to aid Ukraine um, have been um, seen to be using TikToks, and Russia's using those TikToks of those Canadian soldiers to target uh, buildings where there might be some military strategic value, um, which is another interesting way that technology is being used in this uh, 21st century warfare. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. It, it is. You I know, really using TikTok, considering its kind of heritage as well and, and potential mm. uh, alliances. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, and it is really something that you know can cut both ways. Because if people can access TikTok to, or you know, any other platform or, or method or messaging to, you know, get news to each other when they're on the ground trying to protect themselves or whatever, the invaders, um, the other parties, can equally do the same thing and I can completely understand why Ukraine might be wanting to use Clearview's, you know, AI at, at checkpoints to vet people walking through and all that kind of thing. Um, but also once conflict is over, you kind of want to shoot it all out of the sky to a certain degree. Yeah, you know, absolutely. what if it, you know, sets a new standard and it just sticks around? That's, you know, a whole other debate for, you know, that of whiskey and another time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But uh, speaking of... Um, uh, all, all things Ukraine and satellite news. Um, the company Starlink, um, which is sort of attached to Elon Musk and um, SpaceX, has um, you know hit the headlines in recent weeks because they shifted a bunch of their satellites um, at the Ukraine president's request over Ukraine airspace t- so that they could keep their communications up and running. And um, in news that's just come out um, in the last day or so is that um, Starlink, so the people who subscribe to uh, Starlink internet services are now going to have to crack their wallets open a little bit further. So the Starlink kit is increasing from $4.99 to $549 for people who have a deposit, um, straight up to $5.99 for all new orders effective immediately, and the monthly service price will increase from $99 to $100. So the company's blaming inflation and, you know, it is a, a you know, world market with a lot of inflation. So this is probably just the start of a whole lot more price raises that are going to hit people in the hip pocket. I somewhat think as well that a lot of these companies are using inflation, which is no doubt here, but using it as a smokescreen when they're not necessarily affected themselves just yet, just yeah. to raise prices um, to make more money for themselves. That was the Reddit view, and um, the, yeah. the Starlink moderators actually shut the whole thread down. So. Yeah, of course. They have to, things like that. <laughs> um, in other news, uh, the US Department says Google is uh, 
is misusing attorney-client privilege to hide documents. So the Department of Justice filed an antitrust lawsuit against Google in 2020 over having an unfair monopoly over search. And uh, it's been found that Google actually trains their employees to CC lawyers into their chats uh, and into their emails so that it can be construed as attorney-client privilege. So they use in-house lawyers to achieve this and... uh, yeah, the uh, Department of Justice in America not happy about that. They're um, fighting the um, the the way that they're using uh, this this right essentially. Which, like, I'm a big fan of a loophole, but in this case, it's uh, it's more nefarious than you know just finding a thirty bucks from a um, you know in the couch pocket or something like that. It's uh, <laughs> it's using uh, yeah the the Justice Department to skirt um, being responsible for their activities. Mm. Um, yeah. I feel sorry for the lawyers having to literally read all of those emails going, oh, wait, oh, no, I don't have to do anything on this one. It's just about Taco Tuesday or something like that, and they've <laughs> got to pay attention. Um, so, yeah, Google specifically told those teams to follow the practice for any written communication containing revenue-sharing agreements and mobile application distribution agreements. Um, so some pretty uh, heavy stuff to be... Uh, keeping from public view. Um, yeah, like I said, a good loophole, but just so nefarious. And uh, I don't think helps the world of tech when you can't, when there's a monopoly like that. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, one thing that uh, is also uh, on, on the slightly shifty side is um, Nestle's operations in, in Russia. There is a, a rump of. Um, um, dubious businesses um, sticking around in Russia, um, and there's uh, a few of them, um, but in particular Nestle uh, has been targeted uh, overnight. Uh, Nestle, uh, last year, I think, um, reportedly paid taxes of uh, close to $500 million, uh, across Russia, uh, is refusing to pull out and, and refusing to curtail operations there despite the, the conflict in Ukraine. Um, so Anonymous has done what Anonymous does best, um, made some threats and then taken action. And uh, overnight, um, I was up at 4 a.m. for some reason uh, when this was breaking. I was like, oh, this, this is quite interesting. Um, they've leaked uh, 10 gigabytes of uh, Nestle company data, uh, including um, company emails, um, supplier information um, and uh, passwords and um, a variety of other bits of information. Um so, yeah, it's up available uh, on their signal. Uh, if you want to jump in and read some emails, <laughs> if you've got nothing to do with your night, uh, you're quite welcome to. Um, so, listed on Telegram, uh, I should say, not signal, um, as uh, nestleorders.txt, uh, nestlepartial1.txt, and nestlepasswords.txt. Um, even Nestle Payments, uh, if you're curious about that. Um, so, yeah, looking at the, the cybernews.com report on this, um, there are suggestions that it wasn't entirely um, 10 gigs worth. Um, there's been around uh, five gigs worth of data um, so far kind of um, looked at um, from these leaks. But, um, yeah. Uh, Could have happened to a nicer company. <laughs> Couldn't happen to a nicer company. Yeah, um, there, there's a few of them. Yeah, Unilever, uh, Mercedes-Benz, BMW. Um, there's a host of companies out there. And look, I, I you know, um, dealing with what's going on in Russia is a difficult situation. And you, you're talking about uh, hundreds of millions of, um, sometimes billions of dollars worth of, of plant material and staff and turnover and so forth. But, um, you know, that's the world that you're in. And um, you, you have to choose the right side and, and, and be on the right side of history. So, um, things like this are going to happen. And, um, 
I, I find it especially galling um, with the kind of cloying kind of positioning of some of these brands about how they're here for people and here for us and, you know, the, the goodness they're bringing into the world, sort of Willy Wonka-like. But, you know, if, if you're just kind of ploughing ahead in Russia, um, it, it's all shown to be a farce, um, yeah. of course. Oh, definitely. You know, a, a corporate social responsibility arm doesn't have a whole lot of credibility when you've got a absolutely horrendous track record and, um, you know, with your current actions aren't doing anything to actually correct that in the interest yeah, of, you know, humankind. Definitely check out the uh, uh, the image thread uh, under Nestle Anonymous on Twitter. There's some very juicy um, memes and, and Photoshop work of um, Nestle products and logos and, and so forth. If nice. You're into, uh, that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, good on Anonymous. I think um, stuff like this has to happen. Um, we have to use everything we can to, to um, make our point. Absolutely. Totally agree. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We are about to have a chat to our first guest. Warren, would you like to uh, give him a bit of an intro? I can do that indeed. Um, Professor Peter Holland is Professor of Human Resource Management and Director of the Executive MBA at Swinburne in Melbourne. Uh, He's previously at Monash and uh, doing all kinds of things. But tonight, he's here to talk to us about surveillance at work and particularly, uh, I guess, hybrid work, which uh, a lot of us are doing now, uh, e-monitoring and and surveillance with uh, regard to working from home or not working from home, as the case may be. Um, Peter, thanks for um, joining us on the show tonight. Not at all. Glad to chat. Uh, so um, you've been doing a bit of um, a study on this as well. I think there's been a, a survey that's gone out or a, um, a bit of research on how Australians are working now. Is, is that correct? Is that in the process? Yeah, or um, I've, I've been following monitoring surveillance in the workplace for quite a while, but I was, asked, I was approached to do some work um, for a, a book chapter on surveillance and, and working from home and how people are changing their work. And it, it was quite stunning when I started to look into it a bit more, um, how much surveillance has actually moved from the workplace to actually to the technology because a lot of us were working at home. Um, the rough figures are that 80% of private companies have installed some sort of monitoring and surveillance software on their employees' uh, technology. So it's um, quite a significant shift in terms of thinking you're working at home but and without the boss being able to see you, but arguably they're probably monitoring you and surveilling you more than they were when you were in the office. Um, how much is this of this is known by the employees? Is it something an explicit like we're installing a program just so you know, or is it just we're watching the green dot on Microsoft Teams, yeah. and if that's not green, you're in trouble? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a, a bit of both. I, I think um, people uh, companies might do it subtly. It might be in an a- email. I don't know. Most people, I do this when I come into work. I log on and it says, "Do you accept all the conditions?" And I don't know anyone who sits there for two minutes and reads the conditions. You just click and accept. So, a lot of people, it might be put on there in terms of they passively agreed and they're not aware of it. But uh, at the other extreme, there are situations where people know it's there. It's euphemistically called tattleware, 
So it's, you know, the word tattle is basically watching <laughs> you. And, and you know, I'll, I'll give you some quotes. I'm just, just looking at some of my research here. Um, there's people who are actively aware of it saying, if you're idle for a few minutes, if you go to the bathroom, a pop-up screen comes up and it'll say you have 60 seconds to start work again or your pay will be paused. So that's one scenario. Sure. Well, my, I know, I know. That's, that's one of the extremes. Uh, my manager knows every damn thing I do. I barely get to stand up and stretch uh, uh, when I'm physically out of the office um, because I have to be in front of the computer all the time. And my, I think my favourite was my employer realises I can give more work now. They realise that they can monitor my screen directly. So there's, there's a lot of issues here about lack of trust, work intensification, when we've all seen the potential of hybrid being a balance between work and work-life balance and non-work. Uh, for some people, it's actually become a more extreme version of the workplace for them. Um, so with like, uh, the amount of work that people are doing, are uh, employers finding that maybe the six people that they had hired to do the job, they could do with four, and it's just that in the office they weren't able to monitor every, ex yeah, every yeah. minute of the day. Is that, is that mm. kind of thing happening? Um, I, I'm not aware of it, but that sort of Orwellian view of the workplace is, is not too too far away from the steps we're seeing here that, you know, the last last comment said uh, my, my boss knows they can get more out of me and, you know, they, they can monitor your, your uh, they can get down to the point, they can monitor your movement of your mouse and your key speeds, which they could do before, but um, with people working from home, they've been able to load that technology onto the computers, so they can actually potentially say, well, you need to be working at this level or you need to be at work this time. I have heard of people uh, and the boss is saying, well, you're not doing an hour and 20 minute commute, so you can start work an hour earlier. I have heard of that situation. So, <laughs> there is the danger of work intensification through, through the use of technology. Rather than being liberated from it, a lot of people are finding that it's actually sort of uh, coercing them into the workplace. Yeah, or even potentially contributing to wage theft, which is what, you know, that whole commute type piece and, and all the rest of it is. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, with this sort of mass migration out of the offices and into um, the old home office, um, mm. there, I've actually read quite a few articles in the last few weeks that, you know, now that it's had time to settle in, um, it's, it's sort of proven that a lot of the so-called middle management roles are essentially quite redundant because people are just happily working from home and turning their work in. And I'm wondering if, um, you know, these roles are now being redefined is we're going to sit there, we're going to spend our times as middle managers watching what you do, um, looking at your screens, looking at your time logs or whatever that might be. Do you think that that's the case? Oh, look, there's no reason why that can't be a vision in certain organisations, but I think this is a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a great opportunity, the pandemic, with the technology we've got, is to actually decide how we're going to use it. Um, organisations can say, yes, we can do that, but we choose to trust our workforce. Or they can say, well, I don't trust any of you. I'm going to monitor you because if I monitor you, it means that, you know, you can't do anything wrong that I don't know about, and it's that. And there's always that danger where people say, if you're not doing anything wrong then you shouldn't fear being monitored. But you know yourself, if, if you know that your boss is watching you every minute, you go to the toilet and there's an email, you come back saying you're not at your station. There's that psychological pressure, pressure and stress. And the, the other way of looking at this is organisations who've done that for two years are probably not going to keep their workforce like those who said, we understand as long as you get your work done, we're happy for you to do your work and we're not going to overly surveil and monitor you. 
Um, they're the ones who are going to be, I would say, the winners in the workplace, not the ones who are uh, pushing their workforce and making them feel as though they're, <laughs> they're being monitored every minute of the day. For sure. Okay. I'm curious to know, um, is there this, uh, it seems to be an automatic um, uh, assumption that being at your computer is being productive and, and working? Uh, is, yes. is, is, that, yeah. is that just a happy coincidence of the only type of work you can monitor is from the computer? Um, yeah. I, I mean, I think I think I've just, just come out of teaching and I was talking about this to students. That how many of us book holidays or do our banking while we're at work? I think there's, a, there's generally a leniency in that. But um, in some of these workplaces, they can actually, you know, monitor the speed of your keys, what you're actually, what, what you're doing, and actually look at you, take screenshots of you, whether you're working. So the, the surveillance can be at such a level that it's very difficult to do anything that's not non, that's not work-related. So most of us feel as though being at work, there's a little bit of um, latitude in terms of taking time off or just booking something or checking something. But <laughs> with this sort of level of surveillance, um, employers can, if they want, choose to do this. And as I said, I was shocked to see, um, I think it was Gantner reported 80% of private companies actually surveil, have put on electronic surveillance on since the pandemic, which suggests that there are a lot of employers out there who have felt uncomfortable by not seeing, physically seeing their workforce and want to um, electronically be able to see their workforce. But it's the level of intensity that I find is going to be concerning for employers and employees because we're not used to that level of pressure on us. Yeah, definitely. Um, can definitely see how it can add to the stress. I mean, um, you know, watching things like Slack channels and, and Teams channels mm. and Discord channels and things heat up and, you know, even just having a policy of you must have your notifications on so that you can participate in all the chats, that in and of itself can be stressful mm. enough, let alone getting a little alert saying you've got, you know, 60 seconds to sit back down or you're in strife. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I, was, I read something yesterday about Stanford University study that said that people are genuinely fatigued by, by Zoom, Zooming and Teams and all that, because during the pandemic, you couldn't actually say you weren't available. Um, we're all stuck at home, particularly here based in Melbourne. You mm. couldn't go anywhere. So how can you actually refuse meetings when you say, well, I want to do something else? And I've I've been in I've been in meetings from eight in the morning to eight at night and wondered where the day's gone. We never did that before, but equally we didn't have to commute to go to meetings and then commute home again. So it's really it's really great great sort of time for organisations to make a decision as to whether they're good employers or not. So how are how are people taking this in general? Uh, is there a is there a fight back? Is there anti surveillance software that people can get or um, are the, people just the, being flat just honest, I yeah. don't want you to watch me while I'm working? Yeah, I think that you can you can use strategies around it, but I think it's a, it's a sort of a passive thing that um, everyone has smart technology in their hand or in their house, so uh, it's that easy just to load stuff onto it. I don't think people are generally aware of it or they don't see the significance of it in terms of what's actually happening and those who do can be very stressed by it and unlikely to be very productive. If you wake up stressed that your employer is sitting over your shoulder metaphorically every second of the day, then I don't think you're going to be as productive as you would if you were just doing your job normally. Mm. So it's a little bit of that uh, double-edged sword of by yeah, watching right. people, they're just not going to be able, not be as productive as possible. 
that's right. I mean, with, with all that, I mean, I'm talking to you on a smartphone that my employer technically, if they wanted to, could monitor me within two meters of where I am day in, day, in, day out. Um, that's the sort of level of, of surveillance that you can get from people, get from organisations. I mean, they wouldn't because Swinburne is awesome and a very good employer, correct? Well, <laughs> yeah. you, took, you took the words right out of my mouth in case the Vice-Chancellor is listening in. Yes, but, um, but, but universities are interesting. Yeah, but it's interesting because, the, 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 for example, from an academic, the shutdown wasn't anything revolutionary because I would work at home two or three days a week on research because it's, the, it's, the, it's what I produce mm. is important and I come in and teach. So it's never never been an issue for most academics because if you can stay at home and do nothing but over a, over a year if you've not produced any research then it's going to reflect and that's where I think that trust and um, confidence in your workforce has to be. Mm. And like, like you said uh, from what you produced maybe it's uh, a lot of it is just comes from production not time spent in front of the computer there needs to be yeah. a, a positive shift towards that kind of yeah. workforce. And as perhaps. you said about Possibly the good point that made, you made about the loss the middle managers. Some middle managers may feel they have to justify their position, and this might be one way of doing it. Look, I'm monitoring all these staff because we can't trust them. If you got rid of me, who's, who's watching them? Yeah. And that might be another factor in that sense. But it's a case, I think this is a real paradigm shift for some managers to say, look, most workers are trustful. They, can't, they want to do their job. If I let them do their job, that's fine. You can have checks and balances in a system, but you don't need to monitor them yeah. every second of the day to the extent that they go to the toilet and there's an email saying, where are you? Uh, that, yeah. that's, that to me is, it's, it's extreme, but it's, it's not un, uncommon from the evidence I'm finding. And in any regard, working from home is here to stay, so why wouldn't we make it more pleasant for ourselves? Definitely the hybrid model is here to stay, but it's basically how, how we basically tolerate that model. And again, I would say to bad employers who say, well, we must monitor people. Well, let's see if you can hold on to your quality staff if you treat them like that. Mm. Uh, that would be the key, Absolutely. I would say. Um, We've just been speaking with Professor Peter Holland from Swinburne University of Technology about e-monitoring and working from home and businesses uh, being able to monitor their workforce. Peter, thanks so much for coming on the show and um, letting that's us know it, some fantastic. of the ins and outs of that uh, kind of situation. Yes, and I will, and I'll check to see if the Vice-Chancellor sent me an email to <laughs> yeah. say that I should be doing other work. <laughs> good, good, branding, good branding opportunity, good work. Exactly. <laughs> Maybe we'll get a raise. Thanks, guys. All thanks, Peter. Thanks, Peter. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Melbourne's own Triple R. Uh, long-time listeners might remember our uh, rather spicy chat with Scott Ludlam about the um, uh, Social Media and Online Safety Act. Uh, I think it was the last show of, of last year. Um, it is still, um, uh, I guess, influencing um, what kind of internet we have in Australia, and, and that's um, that's pulling through at the moment. So, um, yeah, we're excited to have um, Ruby Quayle and uh, Sam Foriani um, on the show to have a chat about, uh, I guess, what kind of spaces we're creating online um, uh, for, for queer people, um, for, for Australians more broadly. Um, and there's been some interesting stuff written about it recently, um, but who better to talk about it uh, than Sam and Ruby. Um, thanks for making time, for, for being on the show. Thanks so much thanks. for inviting us. Thanks for having us. Uh, have we have we created um, Ruby? You're not actually in our interesting kind of forest glade that we've got going on here on, on Skype. Um, I'd like to think maybe we could personalise it a bit and make it really nice. But maybe that's a good starting point. What is a what is a safe space online, or what is a, a space that's that's um, that's good from from your perspectives? And we can get to the the broader perspective after that. 
I think that's a lot of, um, I think something that makes it quite safe is a lot of freedom in order to how to identify and how to express yourself. Um, one, a lot of things, particularly with queer and trans people around this is that they're, uh, they aren't able to, to properly express themselves or properly express the way they want to in the sort of physical non-digital space. So they often turn to, to online spaces to, to sort of do that. Um, and it can be things around like what they're comfortable sharing um, or talking about themselves, things around, you know, seeking out particular information and also around for trans people, whether they can express their true gender, whether they can express the name as well as like beyond that, um, when you think of other sort of adjacent communities, if you look at sort of, you know, how the fairy community is taken up with VR chat and how, you know, that kind of space and the ability to embody a sort of different being, a different kind of physical form is really, really being quite powerful to them or, you know, how as we sort of move away from using this kind of first name, last name kind of standard sort of form of identification, people who have more complicated identities, maybe they're plural and have multiple identities or um, agenderqueer or various other things where their identity changes a lot more, they're much more comfortable in these spaces. So I think um, quite one of the more comfortable things about online spaces for queer people is the flexibility that that allows um, but I'm sure Sam will get into later. Um, they're very difficult to kind of, uh, they don't, they don't quite work particularly well with the systems we've established around identity in the physical space. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's, that's spot on Ruby. Um, I was just thinking, as you're saying, like one of the really powerful things that we have with the internet is the ability to, uh, create and enjoy alternative worlds um, to the to the you know compared to the limits uh, the limitations that we have of the physical one. But the trouble is is that we are you know getting more and more towards ideas of having like a fixed digital identity that you you know that everything kind of gets tied back to. There's lots of talk about um, you know wanting to reduce people's ability to be anonymous or pseudonymous online. And most of those um, arguments are made from a place of saying, well, we need to make we need to make online um, spaces safer and therefore we should reduce anonymity or we should make people um, have their like quote unquote real yeah. identity online. And they, so that that is sort of framed as a safety argument. But what that does is it it doesn't acknowledge that for a lot of people, um, especially many in in queer communities, actually rely on those very things to enhance their safety. So it it is really it's challenging. But I think that yeah, to be able to create create safer spaces for. Um, a lot of queer people online does need to have a little bit more flexibility in terms of um, being able to choose your own identifiers, being able to um, uh, articulate your pronouns however, however you want, being able to um, change your name because a lot of, I think a lot of the structures that we have in place really call for um, rigidity, sort of as Ruby was alluding to, but it's just not that that simple um, for a lot of people. The other thing that I would add to that is that I think we get caught up in this idea of safe as an end goal 
And I think it's worth uh, pushing back on that a little bit and reframing it more towards harm reduction, because a lot of the sort of conversations that we're hearing in the sort of political spheres at the moment really sort of hold this idea of safety as this particular sort of fixed idea that we can like reach. And I just don't know if that's necessarily uh, always possible because there's always going to be, you know, some level of threat. So yeah, everybody's definitively safe versus um, there was some cut and thrust and, you know, some people were kind of in a, in a gray space, which is potentially what is best. Like we're, we're, we're adults, we're humans, we're, you know, we're all very messy objects. So, you go, man. Jump in. Um, so what, what can the government do to, to help with this? What's, what kind of um, things can they <laughs> enact with? Maybe um, eliminating some hostile policies? Or something of that like? Yeah, I mean, that would be great. Yeah. <laughs> Burn it all to the ground yeah. and start again. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, how, how is the government helping or more to the point hindering, um, you know, the, the, the safety of um, queer people? Like you said, um, safety is an end goal, but harm reduction being the, the aim. Um, how's, how is the government involved in this scenario? So I guess, so recently Ruby and I contributed to writing this piece for Junkie, which kind of explores um, some of this stuff, which I'd love for people to go away and read after after this. Um, but what sort of inspired it was, I mean, this work has been happening for a while. There's been a lot of talk about online safety um, in politics. I'm sure people have have heard some of it. As you mentioned, the Online Safety uh, Act was sort of quite a big controversial piece. So those conversations have been happening. But then when recently the religious discrimination bill debate flared up and it got very ugly, um, it, for me personally, it really struck me as being, as like to remind me, to take me back to being a teenager and being like, oh yeah, no, when, when there is this level of hostility and like, like very, very real threat of violence and, um, uh, discrimination in physical spaces, lots of people turn to the internet to be able to, um, find, find community, find support, um, et cetera. And so Within that context of the debate, I got chatting with Ruby and Kat and Eliza, the other contributors to the to that piece, and we all sort of started to reflect on how the internet has been such has played such a pivotal role. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the uh, ideology behind the religious discrimination bill does seep through into other areas, including into um, uh, internet and regulation and tech policy, which I think we're seeing come through quite a lot. How, what do you reckon, Ruby? Did that, do you think that's fair? <laughs> I think that's fair. Um, I don't think there's a lot of, I guess, yeah, I don't think there's necessarily a lot of trust, particularly with the religious discrimination bill, with statements that were made by Anthony Albanese today, with various other things that are happening around queer politics and the, the federal government. There's probably not a, a lot of trust within queer people for their needs and their um, interests and everything just to be taken into account. Um, it's sort of like the the sort of um, the the sort of like discussion space isn't isn't really primed to sort of have the government 
create legislation that takes into account our needs. Um, as you know, Sam has talked about with the things around the religious discrimination, not with the, with the online safety bill, there's a lot of bills. Um, some of the people that were like um, talked to around this were like transphobic groups who were trying to create spaces free from trans people and uh, like groups like that. So there's sort of like this explicit um, interest from from the government in almost trying to remove these spaces or to make these spaces more palpable for cishet people. And that's quite a worrying thing to sort of see happen. Oh, definitely. And um, obviously there's been some recent research conducted by Tinder which found that almost eight in ten trans youth are only out on the internet and that, you know, one in five people come out online before ever telling someone that they know in the real world. And, you know, Ruby, in that in that same piece, you know, you, you made mention of how hard it is to see, you know, transitioning as an option when you don't have that visibility and you don't have sort of the role models and that kind of thing. Do you want to talk a bit to... You you know, how important it is for representation to be there? I think it is. I think, um, yeah, you can, the, the one thing, you know, of course, a lot of social media has problems around uh, how it makes us visible and the ways that uh, we're used, but it has allowed a huge amount more expressions of identity to come forward. Um yeah, when I'm thinking about sort of the the sort of trans people I knew before I transitioned and, and sort of when I was growing up and the queer people, they were all sort of, yeah, performers, people who who were quite uh, palpable for this audience who, you know, could, that there was like this sort of idea for them and that they were in films and in TV shows and there was this sort of specific identity that was considered sort of like palpable. Um, and I just didn't uh, align with that. Um, but I was lucky enough to be able to find examples of people who and role models who I wanted to be like and talk to them and feel accepted by them. And that's sort of, you know, something that's obviously a lot harder to do in in the non-digital space. And the things like, um, and, you know, one of the things that happens a lot with particularly trans people, but queer people as well, is that our expressions are sexualized that we're often seen as more adult and more kind of like unsavory there's a huge issue with trans creators and queer creators who are trying to sort of monetize content they create online and it getting blocked because it's seen as as adults seen as sort of sex work um even when it isn't not that there's, a, not that there's anything wrong with sex work mm. but it's a um so it's there's a Th things like that that could be pushed harder and made more difficult could create more barriers to finding these people as things like that are often discouraged within systems to try and reduce um, companies' liability when it comes to sort of anti-sex work and anti adult content legislation. Yeah. And there is always that little bit of a propensity. I think we, you know, one of the most visible examples of that was the referendum on, you know, same-sex marriage and you know, people were barking on about crap like marrying bridges and marrying our pets and all of this kind of stuff. And, and naturally, absolutely none of it's happened. And, um, you know, there's that constant knee jerk, let's just completely blow it out of proportion and forget, you know, what the core issues are. Let's keep people safe instead of let's have some net zero type unachievable goal. Um, to totally get the harm minimisation, you know, direction that you you're heading in i think ruby highlights a really really important point as well is that 
a big part of this is that there is this really pervasive anti-sex and anti-sex work uh, ideology that's underneath a lot of this. And because there is that hypersexualization of queer and trans people, it does mean that if you are not careful with the terms that you set, if you if you are not when you know if you think about being on a social media platform and you've got community guidelines, um, or you or you have to yeah yeah community guidelines is a good example, and they they you know they try to sort of set them at some kind of standard that that is you know supposed to be broad and fits a lot of people, but if you are not careful with that and you've got broad terms, then what ends up happening is not only are you then going to end up taking down content of people who are sex workers, which I think is like that's a, that's a problem in and of itself, but it also expands out from that um, to sex educators, sex positive people. And because of that hypersexualization of queer people um, and trans people, it often will capture them as well. And so we have to be really careful about the kinds of um, terms that we're setting and being being aware of the like underlying um, or, or the dominant um, culture as well. Because like in Australia, there is there is a very strong conservative right. And um, a lot of these ideas do come through in into the sorts of um, legislation that gets proposed that does that ends up regulating the tech that we use and then in turn ends up um, impacting all of us, not just queer people. All, everyone who's using technology gets impacted by that by those decisions. Um, a, uh, so a great example of this recently was um, the Tumblr app on, on mm. Apple's App Store has had to sort of reduce the tags and stuff that they allow. And every sort of few months or something, they've increased this list. And it's worth Googling to find it because there are some absurd, absurd things that they're blocking just in out of this fear of, of you know, breaking Apple's terms and conditions based on sexual content. Mm. For example, I think the tag of girl is blocked. So there was no <laughs> anything that mentions girl, the word girl, any post something can't be, can't be viewed on Tumblr on an iPhone, which is... Dumb. And, Wild. <laughs> and and Tumblr still haven't learnt their lesson after Tumblr again <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so we um, definitely recommend that you check out the piece on Junkie called Queer Online Spaces Are Being Threatened by the Government's Internet Regulation. I've just quickly banged a, a link to it up on my Twitter and we can probably hook in a link on the official Bite Into It Twitter. Um, so we've been speaking to uh, Sla Sam Floriani and Ruby Quayle. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Triple R. Couple of last little news items before we depart your ears. Um, TEDx Melbourne is on next week on the 1st of April and you can get some tickets to that at Eventbrite. On the April the 2nd, Subculture Festival is on at Flemington Racecourse. Um, lots and lots of really fun dance music, trance, progressive tech, all that sort of good stuff, Eventbrite, as always. Girls in Tech Australia is on at May 18th at South Wharf. So that'll be a really cool one. And Google Maps is accidentally blurring dogs' faces to protect their privacy. So thank you so much <laughs> to our guests this evening, Professor Peter Holland, um, Samantha Floriani and Ruby Quayle and thank you to my co-hosts Dan and Warren I'm Ro Murray so um, always love to thank our talks producer Elizabeth McCarthy podcaster Matthew Hall and we'll be back next Wednesday evening stay tuned 
Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.